everyone and welcome to episode 49 of the Talking Football Podcast with me, Derek Clark, and it's part two of the Bob Wilson special. In this episode, we delve into Bob's career in the world of sports broadcasting. To many, it came as a surprise when he retired from football at the tender age of 32 a career in television, but it turned out to be a great move. He fronted football focus and match of the day for years before moving to ITV in the mid-90s. Bob goes into terrific detail to give us an insight into what life was like, both in front and behind the camera. He also tells us about his charity, the Willow Foundation, which began as a result of the tragic death of his daughter. He discusses his own cancer scare and also what he made of Arsene Wenger when he arrived at Arsenal and what he thinks of the current Gunners boss, Mikel Arteta. So sit back and enjoy the latest episodes of the Talking Fitball podcast. fantastic career in, in in the world of television Bob but in terms of you hear a lot of players when they when they retire from football saying that they don't so much miss the games but they miss the, the sort of camaraderie in the dressing room and what have you yeah. was that the same with yourself or um, did, did you miss it uh, when you stopped playing yeah I mean there is I mean there is a, it's a, you become a family yeah. if you're successful you become an incredibly close family that lasts now I mean Frank has lost his wife this, this year Frank and I are in touch all the time you know, it's really sad there, George, Frank, and, you know, I mean, we, we, all those guys, I see Charlie George all the time. I mean, you become a family. If you're then successful in a side, I'm not sure quite how it would be if you'd never won the things that you won together and fought the battles that you fought together. Um, I think it could be quite different. Um, but in, in my case, I would never have any problem with any of my, you know, I think there were 16 others in the squad in the 70-71 double season. Yeah. Um, and every one of those, not that they're all alive now, um, you know, we, we would, um, we, I think we would still do things together. We were due actually right now, uh, I think about a week or so or whenever it was, was the exact date of our winning the first Cup 50 years ago. Yeah. So that's had to be postponed. It's, it's going to go ahead, but it's been postponed. But, all those of us who are still able and alive and and with it are all agreed to attend with wives and families and things like that. And then next year, of course, will be 50 years of the double. Yeah, right enough. Yeah. So that will be a big that will be a big event at Arsenal yeah. in that year. But in answer to what you're saying, yeah, huge, huge, huge camaraderie. Yeah. Uh, absolutely, but when you moved into the sort of uh, the broadcasting world, Bob, was that something you found? Um, well, you must have you, you, you found natural to be in front of a uh, front of a camera. <laughs> Excuse me for laughing. Excuse me for laughing. Definitely not. I mean, I owe I owe a great deal to uh, my mentor David Coleman, without doubt. He was the one who said Willow can do this. You know, come on, you got to believe him. And then uh, tips that I got from. Um, the guy who was presenting Grandstand with David at the time was Frank Boff, you know. So on day one, he said, "He said, Bob, he said, can I just give you some advice? Because you look, you know, he said, just just have a look at the screen there beside you. Now look, what's it showing? I said, my face. And he said, yeah, but he said, you've got to think that's not a million people out there or two million out there. I mean, we had 26 and a half million for England against Argentina, but that was when I was at ITV. But he said, think of it as being me. You're talking to me, Bob. It's one person. It's not, and 
So tips like that were absolutely gold dust to me uh, because I was a block of wood. And he said, look, what, how can you get some action into the screen? And I said, oh, well, by scratching my ear. He said, exactly. Scratch your ear occasionally. Scratch your nose. <laughs> get, your, get your pencil that's on the table or your pen and, and bring it into vision. So you, you twiddle it. So there is, some, there is some movement in there other than you, like a block of wood. There's one great story, uh, by the way, early on when um, it was about Joe Jordan. Oh, wow. And, um, and it was early, early days. And he, he was, I'd heard he wasn't playing for a particular game. And um, anyway, we, the focus was about to begin. And when we were on it, they said, Bob, we've just heard some news. Joe Jordan definitely fit to play. So I said, well, they said, no, no, no. When, are you, when we come back off this item, because we were on some VT at the time, videotape. Yeah. They said, come back, just pick it up from there. And I said, oh, oh right, okay. You know, and there was about 15, 20 seconds to go. And so I'm thinking, all right, we just heard that, you know, so I got in my mind what I wanted to say, which was basically, you know, just before we move on here, we just got some team news uh, yeah. through and we just heard that Joe Jordan has just passed a late fitness test. But in my panic and the 10, 15 seconds that went quickly, it came up, we've just got some team news, we've just heard that Joe Jordan has just pissed a late fitness test. <laughs> so you learn... You learn very, very quickly, honestly. Yeah. I mean, you, I mean, I can still remember. I can remember, you know, yeah. I can remember on a, on on days when, yeah. I mean, there are always times when something is going to go wrong, and you've got to think on your feet. It's television when you're presenting. It's totally different when you are, you know, when when it's like. If I think now of. Alan Shearer and Wrighty say or whatever, you mm. know, on match of the day and Gary's doing the presenting. Uh, the buck stops with Gary. Yeah. You know, when you're there and you're just the guest, you just follow whatever whatever your presenter is leading you to. So, you you know, you are in charge. I mean, can you imagine being on the Hillsborough day like I was when suddenly it came through, look, this is, this is serious. And then within an hour, we knew that a certain amount of bodies were lying outside the scanner, mm. the BBC scanner there. And we were still not allowed to say anything because the crowds were still in the ground. And they feared that Liverpool and Forest fans, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Liverpool Forest fans. Yeah. You know, that there would be a riot. And so, you know, it was a case of, no, we've, we've and then eventually we were, we were allowed to say, we've heard that there have been serious casualties and six people have lost their lives. And when I came off the air, um, I think I, it was only a dozen or whatever I was able to say because they were still they were still all chaos, but we knew by then. Within 15 minutes or 20 minutes after we'd come off air of that program, and I mean, I was basically going between our staff at Hillsborough reporting, you know, not reporting dead bodies because they weren't allowed to, mm. um, going between there and the World Snooker Championships, which actually, ironically, we still were in, in Sheffield at the... Uh, Crucible, yeah. Know, at the, yeah. And so that was the afternoon, um, but I knew there were bodies because I was hearing coming from the scanner, one of our producers there, John Shrewsbury, saying there are now 20, 30, 40. And within, within about, when we came off air and we went and had a drink and everybody was upset and people were crying and all sorts of things, um, it came on the news that 25 people had lost their lives and that ultimately became 96. Yeah. You know, it became 95, and then there was a guy who survived. You know, it became 96. So yeah. 
I mean, nothing that you ever do can prepare you for that sort of scenario. Mm. It must, yeah, it must I be mean, so difficult get, remaining professional when all that's going on behind you. I can't imagine how how difficult yeah. that must have been. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I had the head of sport coming through and said, "Look, we, we, you know, you, you know how many, you know, there's lots of people who've died, you know." And this was only about ten minutes from the end of the program, and I was slightly upset because he was saying, "You know, you've got to find some right words. You've got to find some right words. You've got to give yeah. the, you know, if you're concerned about any of your loved ones, this is a message. You know, can you do that?" You know, and he was sort of, I think, whether he was worried that you know I wasn't the normal number one presenter of grandstand. Uh, Des was actually at the game. So he wasn't presenting the program grandstand that day. It was me presenting the program because you didn't have live. You weren't allowed live games then yeah. other than the cup final. And so, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was a really massive sort of challenge that, that, that afternoon to sort of knowing, knowing that it was far worse than we were actually allowed to say. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I mean, that, that is an extreme spirit. That oh, is, most definitely. <laughs> Yeah, there's, there's a lot of difference between saying that and Joe Jordan's just failed yeah. his pistol at his death, you know? So. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned your Des Lynham, of course, you worked with him. Jimmy Hill, you worked with it as, as well, didn't you? When you're, yeah, uh, during, well, I mean, I, I, worked with Col- I worked with David Coleman, I worked with Frank Boff. I, I worked, um, Jimmy came over eventually, because he'd never really been a presenter, Jimmy, and Jimmy came from ITV. Yeah. And then he took over on, you know, Match of the Day. And I I would do the news scenario. I would do the, all the news pull together, and he would get us on the air and get us off the air, which sometimes was really amusing. But that's a different <laughs> story. Anyway, uh, um, but but Jim Jim was a, a character and a half, incredible. Um, and then obviously, you know, I I would do a certain amount of match of the days. Um, yeah, and and over a period of time, a lot of match of the days. Um, and then, and then Des obviously came. Des, Des was Steve Ryder and Des then were on the scene. And Des, I mean, these are all iconic presenters. Yeah. I never, I, I never ever remember ever Steve Ryder either looking flustered or getting something seriously wrong. Mm. I know in Des's autobiography, he, he still never gets over the fact that he dried up on a World Cup once. <laughs> facing the camera <laughs> and it suddenly there was nothing there and this is Des Lynham this is you know iconic iconic presenter you know one of the great presenters um so anyway I mean obviously you know you're in a business where there's a certain amount of rivalry and, and always will be um and you were just hoping that you would get a fair share of what you deserved if you deserved it yeah but, yeah you it mo- wasn't always easy. I, I'm sure you understand that when you, oh, you know. Absolutely. Uh, ab- absolutely. I'm sure you understand. You know, I mean, there are times when the Beeb, when I thought they treated me really badly for, you know, the fact that I I presented 20 years. I did breakfast news for 13 of those 20 years. So I'd get up at 20 past four in the morning. That was my call. I would be in there by half past five. It would be on the air half six, seven o'clock. Uh, I would finish that at... at um, finish my last one at half eight and then I'd be on the Arsenal training field training the goalies at quarter to ten which I never got paid for by the way I was the because there were no goalkeeping coaches and I just I started the goalkeeping coaches wow I was going to, that, that, that's, that leads us nicely on there Bob because I was going to say how, how did you manage to juggle the, the two sort of uh, the broadcast and what then going and, uh, and training the keepers 
Well, I mean, they understood, Arsenal understood that if I was sent to Monte Carlo or somewhere, if I was asked to go and do a big story, we tried to do the stories always in the afternoons. So I would often do my coaching, get up to the training ground um, for <clears throat> sort of quarter past nine, and I'd get all the lads to get out early, even when Arsene arrived, because um, Arsene needed the goalie, say, after... If we we went out at, I took the goalies out always way before Arsenal ever knew because I needed to get my work in with them and they wanted the work before they were called over to go to the main squad and do the work with the squad. You know what I mean? Yeah. So we had our own goalkeeping patch and Arsenal, in fact, used to come over and have a look and everything. Okay, Bob, yes, yes, Arsenal, fine. <laughs> I will need him in five minutes. Okay, Arsenal, can you give me 10? You know? <laughs> I mean, it, it was hilarious in its way, but I mean, everything was a juggle in that way. And then I would career off, not every day, obviously, but I would then driving to Birmingham, Manchester or whatever to do an interview. Yeah. Um, and sometimes then getting home, crashing. I mean, obviously, if I was on breakfast news the next day, I was always desperate to get to bed by 9.30 in yeah. order to get, you know, because my call was always 20 past four in the morning. Yeah. to do breakfast news. But I only did that on a Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I didn't do Monday, Tuesday. Yeah. yeah so I did, obviously, I did focus, focus and or grandstand and match of the day um, on Saturdays or, or Sundays because we had a grandstand. There was a Sunday grandstand. I presented a lot of Sunday grandstands. Yeah. But it was great. You know, I loved what I was doing. I really was love. I loved what I was doing. I mean, I'm not. I think you know exactly where I'm coming from, Derek. I mean, yeah. it's a competitive business, so I was very upset on a couple of the World Cups in the in the role that I was given. I fought my corner. I didn't always win my corner, uh, and then, of course, the irony was when ITV came in nineteen um, in nineteen seventy. What am I talking about? In ninety, I'm trying to. Ninety four, you went now. You know, nineteen ninety four World Cup. I had a particularly yeah. good World Cup, and I'd done all sorts of things. I did an amazing Maradona piece in about three hours, which really, you know, they were really pleased with and everything. And then out of the blue, suddenly I got a call saying you've got to ring this number, and it was uh, ITV. And I went to them. They immediately offered. Well, they, they immediately didn't even know what I was on on the beep. But they, what they were offering me was double what I was earning at the Beeb with breakfast news and all the sports side. Wow. Uh, and then my wife by that time was my agent. <laughs> and she went in and I said to her, look, I'd prefer to stay at the Beeb, but I need to get my fair whack. Because at times <clears throat> they know full well, not just salary-wise. I mean, I'm not going to go into that other than... My opening salary, I tell you that, my opening salary at the BBC in 1974 when I retired was £5,250 a year. <laughs> and I got extra £30 if I did analysis pieces on Bobby Moore or Steve yeah. Iway or something like that. So I would do as many of those as I could to, to bump it up. But, you know, um, it wasn't as much as I was earning as a footballer, but my highest salary ever as a footballer was £135 yeah. a week. So we got bonuses, four pound yeah. for a win and two pound for a draw, <laughs> <laughs> which always gets a laugh. 
Yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> you think you think nowadays. You know what I mean? That the yeah. uh, the, the world of football yeah. and the money's just went astronomical. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, what happened then when when Megsford and they offered me an amazing amount of match of the days, more than Des would get. Mm. Des never knew this at the time that they offered me twenty five of the thirty four, thirty five match of the days, or whatever it was. Uh, and they immediately, the other thing that annoyed me, I'd been there twenty years by then. They immediately said, "Oh, of course, we'll match exactly what ITV are giving you," mm. which wasn't massive, by the way. It was good. Yeah. It was double. It was double what I was earning at the B. But that, that was that had gone beyond the five grand, by the way. <laughs> yeah, because um, yeah, I'd been there twenty years. Remember, so I'd been doing twenty years of television by that time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I did, I mean, I did, I used to report into, I used to go to games that were in London and then I'd leave five minutes from the end in order to get back to the studio to do the report on the game and that would earn me a little bit more money. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it was, it, it was a hard school and, and everything. And, I mean, there were, there were talented people, hugely talented people. I loved working at the Beeb uh, and I loved working at the ITV for five of the eight years. But, you know... What happened after the on the fifth year at the end of my fifth year when I've been in the chair for the five years and we've had a record ever sporting um, um, you know live on one channel yeah. twenty five or twelve twenty six million Brian Moore and I got the certificates to say a new record for a sporting event which was England Argentina live yeah in the World Cup yeah and, yeah in the World Cup and I mean. Yeah, he put his he hung his up in his toilet and I hung mine up in my toilet. <laughs> the certificate thing that said we'd done it. You know, we thought it was an appropriate place both of us to do it. He was a great guy, Brian Moore. Yeah, he was But anyway, was. um, you know, I did the five years, we had great figures. I mean, gotta remember when I went to ITV, I went to ITV because they were the only ones who had the European Cup as it was, Champions League now, you know? Yeah, yeah. So they were the only ones who had everything. Yeah, the Beeb didn't have very much at that time. We did. ITV. Mm-hmm. So I was in the chair. It was great. And then, God, what happened after that was that my former original editor, one of the original editors at um, the BBC, Brian Barwick, became head of sport at ITV on a huge salary. And when we heard it, my wife and I, we were traveling. And when it was announced on the radio, BBC's head of sport, you know, Brian Barwick is moving to ITV to be head of sport. We both came out with the word shit. Mm. Oh shit! Because his best pal was Des Lynham, uh, so yeah. we both went. He'll try and get Des over. He'll try and pull a big one off here. And sure enough, I got called in at the beginning of a season, the start of my sixth year at ITV, and where everything's gone well. And he's arrived. He, uh, he obviously gave me no indication of it. My daughter just died. I was mm. on crutches because I'd had my first hip replacement at the time. And they sat me down. I thought it was talk about the new season. And he said, uh, we'll be announcing at 2 o'clock today that Des Lynham is joining us. He didn't tell me tell me he'd be joining him for three quarters of a million pounds, but wow. that was a fact. So, I mean, it, you know, that's what you have to put up with. So that was an ugly, ugly, sad sort of moment for me. And um, it had to be, you know, I, I was faced with either suing them and winning clearly because... My agent, my wife, <laughs> had, had inserted the clause that I had to be at all times under the contract, which still had two and a half years to run, principal presenter of football. Yeah. So she'd inserted that. And they hadn't read the contract. Barwick hadn't anyway. 
So, it, you know, it wasn't always pretty. I mean, what happened then was, you know, initially I was going to sue and then Brian Moore was incredible and said, you know, well, well he said, he at first says you must sue them. Yeah. Because you're bound to win. It's in black and white. Yeah. And then Jim Rosenthal, who you've probably heard of. Yeah, well, we, a funny, funny you should say that. We, we had him on last week. Um, ah. We, we, had, we spoke to him last week he was on. Yeah. Well, just to, just to try and abbreviate it, Jim said, he rang me and he said, well, is it true? And I said, yeah, it's going to be announced this afternoon, except it's already been out. I got into the taxi to get me home on my crutches and um, and it's already been on the radio. So he said, and I said, Brian Moore's told me to sue him, Jim, what do you think? So he said, are you in at home? I said, yeah, I'm going home now. He said, well, I'll be around this afternoon. And he came, he sat me down, he said, look, Whatever way you look at it, Willow, you know, this is a competitive business. And Des is loved, you know, he's an iconic presenter. He's loved by so many of them. You're going to be a loser. He said, so use it. Can you bear to present for two more, two and a half more years? And I said, uh, I'm not sure, Jim. I, you know, this is like a dagger right between, yeah. you know, shoulder blades. And he said, but you know you've got them by the shorts and curlies because if you can present it, you, they have got to double your salary. Mm. And they're okay, you know, it was nothing near. There's a 750, whatever. Yeah. But that, that in the end became bargaining factor that um, I had the best salary in my working years for two of those times. And then they actually cut the thing short and sort of, yeah, gave me the car and said, it's time for you to go. Mm. So it was it was pretty sad at the end of it, and I tried to be as professional as I could. But when you've been when you've done the twenty years that I'd done at the Beeb, and then had these amazing five years in the chair, as my brother Bob used to say, "You're in the chair, mate. You're in the chair," <laughs> and you know, and that was great. So um, yeah, it was a hard. That was a hard. That uh, was a hard time. Yeah, very very difficult, and it was a sad time in many respects because it was like you know well. Yeah, you knew you knew you weren't good enough at the beginning, and they probably think you're not good enough now. But yeah, no, but anyway, they, you do so much work for them, but there's certainly no loyalty. They say there's no loyalty in no. football, certainly in the uh, the no. TV world as well. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's yeah, it's a cutthroat business, and I think yeah. you know, I mean, uh, you know, I, I have um, I think I said to you all of the great presenters, you know, the iconic presenters. I have huge admiration. I mean, I know I know how difficult it could be when you're in the chair and you, you're presenting grandstand for five hours and you've got no script in front of you. <laughs> you know, you're making it up as you go along and saying, well, okay, that's been great there. That's the 3.30 race from Cheltenham. And now, where are we off to? Oh, yes, now we're going to the Crucible Theatre in Sheffield, where the world, you know, and <laughs> but it's great. It's exciting. Yeah. In one way, it's exciting. In a one way, it's like, the adrenaline rush that I used to get when I was playing football. Yeah. So I have, you know, I mean, I was a lucky, I was a lucky guy. I survived, which is the word I use. I survived for twenty-eight years on the box. Yeah. Yeah, it's certainly something to be proud of. And, and Bob, yeah. just, just finishing on, on on the broadcasting side of things. I mean, you, like you said, we're still football focus is still on the air. Does it give you an, an immense, uh, uh, a great sense of pride watching it um, now that it's still going? Yeah, I think it's I think it's great. I like Dan Walker a lot as well. I think he's a really good guy. And and you know they now have they. Have, I mean, when I first started, I think we had half an hour, and the half an hour became forty five minutes. Yeah. <clears throat> Football focus now has been an hour for a long time. Yeah. Um. And and you know I think I think Dan is a good presenter. And um. 
Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's great that it wasn't me that came up with the idea, by the way, of calling it football. For Sam, I said to you of Sam Leach, it was known yeah. as football preview. And then when we sat down and I went over and we sat in a group, John Motson was there and it was his early days. And he said, why don't we give it a different name? John Motson it was who came up, let's call it yeah, FF, Football Focus. <laughs> there you go. And so, yeah, that was it was down to Motty. Uh, so very always quick on his feet, John Watson. Yeah, he certainly um, was. Yeah, so it, you know it. Uh, it was an extraordinary. You know, it was it was very very difficult for me after twenty years at the Beeb and five years in the chair, as it were, uh, at ITV. I, uh, you know, to to then have to try and do the programmes that were usually ten thirty, eleven o'clock at night, which is what I had to do for two of the last three years at uh, ITV. Mm-hmm. That was very difficult, very challenging. Yeah, I can imagine. You mentioned Arsene Wenger there um, for a bit. When he first arrived at, at Arsenal, uh, I don't think ma- many people had heard um, of him. Of course, he was in Japan. What, what, what was your first impressions of him and, and, yeah. and, and what did you make of him as a coach? Yeah, well, he'd been in France first, hadn't he? Yeah, he'd had Monaco, a short time in France and then he went to Japan and had this amazing respect for the Japanese nation and, and and he arrived and obviously, you know, I guess he looked a bit like like me, but more of a schoolmaster than me. He had these <laughs> spectacles and he came in and, you know, he, he you know, I mean, he, he had a really horrible start with things that were hurled at him on the steps of Highbury by the media at the time. I would have not been surprised that he just walked away mm. day one. And I was there on the first morning that he was at the training ground and Pat Rice brought him in and introduced him to me and said, look, this is our goalkeeping coach. And he was quite pleased that there was a goalkeeping coach because there were not sort of in the country at that time. Yeah. You know, well, there weren't. You know, it, had, it there was still goalkeeping coaching was in its infancy. So yeah. got introduced and he had been to Highbury. He fell in love with Highbury, by the way. This is just very quickly. Fell in love with Arsenal Football Club. Fell in love particularly with the ground. And... But within, when he came to the training ground, which was the University College of London, the club rented off the University College of London training ground, and it was he 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 had a look around the facilities and came in shaking his head. I'll never forget him saying, "I do not understand. This is Arsenal. I do not understand." And it was because he there was not the facilities. He 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 thought, you know, to be Arsenal, you had to have an amazing yeah. training ground. So that he then immediately went to the board and said, look, if we succeed, if I succeed, the first priority is our purpose-built training ground. And the training ground at Arsenal became the first real purpose-built training ground, followed by, obviously, Man United, Liverpool, Chelsea, all of them. But they all, every one of them, visited London Coney. And he was amazing from day one. It was just staggering. And then, obviously, within a short time, although he adored Highbury like all of us, he said, if we are hoping to compete at the very, 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 very top level of the game, we can't do it on a on a crowd of 38,000, mm. which was maximum, you know, after Hillsborough and everything and the all-seater, it was 38,000. And, and so that immediately then, two streets away, they located this plot of land with 100 businesses on it, bought all 100 businesses out of it, all great to the board to agree to do it, yeah. There was only one dissenting voice who wanted to, to sort of hire Wembley Stadium every weekend. But um, it was Arsene. It was Arsene who just said, look, this is what we do. And, and 
Hence, it came to the Emirates and 60,000. Yeah. Um, and he, I mean, he was just, a, he's an extraordinary guy. I mean, I've always said, he's one of the three, I got myself into trouble because I said very publicly, you know, one of the three most interesting guys I think I've ever met. And I immediately got, well, who were the other two? <laughs> <laughs> and I would have said Bert Troutman was one, who was, yeah. my, who was my sort of goalkeeping hero. But I had to think about it, but I'm not sure who the other one would be. <laughs> but, but. Uh, Arsene, Arsene, it remains, you know, I like to think that, you know, I have a, a really wonderful relationship. If ever we need anything, if we need something for the charity, Arsene, we need something signing. Yes, of course, Bob, you will bring it to me. And yeah, and has done events for Willow for our charity. And um, yeah, amazing man. Great guy. Yes, he certainly is. And that leads us on to um, the charity work that, uh, that you're involved with at the moment, Bob. Obviously, it began with heartbreak, of course, with your with your daughter. Give us a wee little background about the, the charity work that you do. Well, I mean, we're Willow, it's called Willow. Uh, now, that was my nickname as a footballer, but as I tell people, I got called a lot of other things as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, Anna, our daughter, we have two sons and Anna, and Anna um, was really often known as Little Willow. Uh, or Willow, she, she, you know, her, her boyfriend who became her husband called her Willow or Little Willow. And um, after Anna died, Anna was a community nursing sister, and um, she was five years into her marriage just when uh, when she died. Um, a year marriage, she was diagnosed with one of the rarest cancers known to man, which is yeah. called malignant schwannoma. Uh, I won't go into the detail of it, except it's one of the rarest cancers known to man. So yeah. she was incredibly unlucky. And although she survived over five desperate years of 15, 16 life-saving operations and chemo and radiotherapy and everything else, and she never, ever lost her belief or, or, or wish to continue to live, um, it was always going to be a losing battle. And uh, she died six days before her 32nd birthday. And um, it was after that, uh, Anna had said to her mum, just a few really in the days leading up to uh, her dying, mum, don't let this thing destroy you. This thing will try and destroy you. Don't, don't let it destroy you. Use what you've learned. If anything, use what you've learned. And Megs was like, I'm not sure what I've learned, Anna. I'm not sure. And of course, what we learned was that um, she always, from day one, of her prognosis, diagnosis and prognosis, was, listen, however long I've got, we're going to have fun, we're going to have laugh, we're going to create memories and everything. And Anna would go through all this treatment and really, at times, be ill and low and near death in the five years. I mean, it was amazing she survived the five years. But always in her diary, she'd have the next Take That concert or she'd have the next Arsenal Cup final because they were doing all very well at that time. And and Anna, you know, suddenly out of, she would always have something to look forward to and it would give her this adrenaline rush. Um, and on the days of the concerts or whatever she had in her diary, you could almost see a lift in her spirits and everything. And she would, um, and the best example is my This Is Your Life program because she was so ill at the time and it had been postponed twice. Mm. Not that I knew about it because I obviously didn't know until the day when I was caught. But... Um, for the 10 days that followed that program, it was the last time Hannah saw her family because it was on uh, November the 2nd. 
and uh, in 1998, and she only lived for three weeks after that program. And she was uh, she was absolutely for nine, ten days following the program when we saw her on a daily basis. God, Dad, what about when George Best came on? Dad, Dad, what about when Johnny Mathis came on from Los Angeles? What about when your old teammates came on? I mean, she was flying. You know, it was like an adrenaline rush. And it was within that, it was almost, you know, that, that Megs kept thinking, you know, even at a time of serious life-threatening illness, you can still, she taught us, you can still enjoy things and have a reasonable degree of quality of life and quality of time, even at the most challenging of times. And so very quickly, Megs went to the medical profession and then she went and she went to our local, a local newspaper in Hertfordshire and she came up and they said, well, you know, what's your idea? And so the idea was to provide special days, but it had to be a specific age group because there are so many wonderful children's charities. Uh, and obviously in the elderly area, which we are now, there are wonderful charities also. But in the age group of, we call prime time, I call it prime time, the age between 16 and 40, there was nothing, absolutely no real in that particular specific age group. So we give special days, whatever the recipient and their level ones want, special days for seriously ill young adults in the age group 16 to 40. It has to be that specific, exactly. And we, we are into our 21st year now. We, As we celebrated 20 years last year, um, we, we've now given 17, over 17,000 of our special days, anotype special days, if you like. Yeah. Uh, and it's been amazing, and only thanks to, obviously, the generosity of incredible supporters and incredible events that we've managed to raise millions and millions over those 20 years. Yeah, absolutely, and hopefully long may that continue. In terms of the, uh, the work that you're doing at the, at the moment, Bob, as well, of course, the, there's a coronavirus that's affecting us all um, at the moment. In terms of your, yourself and the work that you do, how is that affecting you? Well... I would give anything not to have a conference, as many conference calls each week, because we are a charity and we're only, you know, we're not in one of the big charitable sector. Uh, we we are, you know, we but we have 40 staff. We have six shops. At the moment, the staff are virtually all furloughed and the shops are all closed. And, of course, we give special days to seriously ill 16 to 40-year-olds. So... They're already vulnerable, never mind the coronavirus part of it. So we obviously all our special days are suspended as well. Our issue is how long is this thing going to go on? How long can we survive before we run out of cash? I mean, and that, you know, I'm not making a course for us. I am saying that applies to so many yeah. small businesses, small charities, because we are we are not um we're not um you know, a Save the Children charity or something like that. Um, so we have huge concerns at the moment, but we're we're doing our best to, to sort of, although the, the, the staff are virtually all furloughed, we are trying um, on our reserves to keep ourselves going and hoping that we see the end of it sooner rather than later. Yeah, I think everyone's hopeful hope for that as well. Um, I wanted to touch on just just finally, Bob, as well. I mean, I noticed it in in two thousand and seven you were awarded an OBE, a proud moment, I guess, for you to 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 be awarded that. 
Yeah, um, I mean, it was extraordinary, really, because the actual citation, as it were, says um, for charitable causes in the name of Willow, you know. Uh, um, Yeah, okay. Um, And and so, really, I mean, I am the face of Willow. There's no doubt that, you know, I was Bob Wilson, Arsenal goalkeeper, 28 years on the telly. The public know me. Yeah, it's been incredibly valued with all our connections, the raising of millions and millions and millions over our 21 years. But daily the work, the real hard work, the person who deserved it for that particular citation, charitable causes in the name of Willow, was definitely makes my wife. Because from day one of Anna saying, Mum, Dad, Use what you you know. Use what you've learned. Don't let this thing destroy you. And Meg's just buried herself in creating Willow. You know, first of all, she had a first, she was we were by ourselves out of a back bedroom in Brookman's Park, Hertfordshire, beginning. Then within about a year, we were offered some offices, you know, very locally. And then she had her first assistant, and then the first assistant became two, became ten, became twenty, became, and you know, currently we have seven shops and 40 staff, you know, which is, you know, it's it's just where it's been and where it's gone. Um, But we know that what we, what we did with Anna worked uh, and consequently we, the joy for us and the joy for Megs particularly is the letters and responses we get saying, you know, in amongst this most challenging of times, because so many of our recipients like Anna do not make, uh, don't have a long life. Yeah. Um, but to receive, you know, the, the plaudits that we get from to say, well, you know, our special day gave us, you know, above all, a bit of a touch of normality back in our lives and fun, laughter, smiles. And for the families often who are left, the memories. Yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah, and, and that's really, it's, 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 been, it's been amazing. It's almost, you know... I, I mean, you and I have talked quite a lot this morning about, you know, I've had the most extraordinary life, yes. extraordinary family, extraordinary two eldest brothers, um, everything. It's almost as if it's been written all the way along. Just extraordinary. It certainly has. And I wanted to touch on as well, you had your, your own cancer scare as, as well, Bob, in, in 2014, <laughs> and that must have been a difficult time for you as well. Yeah, but you know, I, I mean, I never looked on it like that, Derek. I mean, I, I got diagnosed um I was very fortunate that, um, yeah, I was in an event in London, went to the toilet, noticed, oh, my, my goodness, what's that, you know, mm-hmm. and and very quickly went to have things checked, and, and, you know, it was, the word cancer is that horror thing, you know? Yeah. And then, of course, it was a guilt thing for me, because I thought, if I've got cancer, was it me that gave Anna cancer? Mm-hmm. I mean, that was a horrific moment for me, and I, I asked the specialists and they say absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with your daughter having the sort of cancer she had and the the, the, the great thing for me and even when you ask me the question I have to think what did I have cancer when did I have cancer yeah. uh, it's about four or five years ago now yeah. and uh, it was caught so early um, and um, I was so so fortunate to have a, a form of uh, treatment that was called brachytherapy so not invasive other than having 64 special seeds inserted into the prostate as it were and um, and yeah. then letting them go to work and so I didn't have anything that was in you know it, it, it was contained within the capsule which is 
the huge amount, again, of luck that I had, that they were able to give me the brachytherapy treatment, um, which has left me with not even a thought of any issue or any problem. In fact, I have to sort of double check when, like you just said, you had your own cancer scare. <laughs> I find, you know, I, I find it, you know, I don't even think about it, to be honest yeah. with you. Yeah. And uh, finally, before we finish up, Bob, uh, just going back to the football again, to, um, to your um, beloved Arsenal. No football, of course, taking place for the foreseeable future. But in terms of Arsenal, before the, the break, Mikel Arteta, of course, came in. What, what have you made of uh, his start in the job and, and the current squad that they have there? Well, I mean, <clears throat> I'm a huge fan of Arteta. Yeah. I mean, I thought he was intelligent when he was a player, but God, you have to listen to him on press conferences and, and I mean he was he was intelligent as a player and a captain at Arsenal so he yeah. knows the history and the and everything that goes to what a few of us snobby Arsenal people think <laughs> you know this this is a club with a little bit of a difference uh, and always has been uh, and and Mikel speaks amazingly well about uh, his philosophies obviously for him to come having been alongside Pep Guardiola uh, and you could see, I mean, every time there was a close-up, Pep was talking to yeah. to Mikel on the bench, you know, and obviously asking Mikel, what about this, what about that? I mean, amazing sort of uh, way to, to learn, you know, to learn at the very highest level from one of the two greatest managers in the game at the moment. Because, um, you know, I, I think you'd agree that obviously Klopp and Pep are the two at the very top of their... Yeah of the tree at this moment in time. So I have huge hopes. Um, it, 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 it does eventually, and sadly in the game nowadays, it's not like when I played. It is not like anything like when you had a level playing field because you oh. could buy a player for five grand or 10 grand or gosh, you know, the first million pound player was way beyond my time as it were, or, or at the end of my time yeah. as a player. Uh, and now you're talking about not just incredible, you know, you think of 99 million being paid for players and things like that. It is extraordinary. Um, it is a totally different game. So ultimately what I'm saying is that it's very difficult for the Arsenal board. Arsenal obviously have a, sponsor, a sponsorship with the Emirates and they have, they have 60,000 crowds coming in and they're far better off than a lot of people. But um, it is being able to afford the players at the very top level and whether you know Mr. Cronkey who's the owner of the club with his son is prepared to go into it in the same way as Sheikh Mansur has or or Mr. Abramovich at Chelsea then that is the bottom line of the game at the moment you know what Leicester City achieved three or four seasons ago is just a miracle beyond a miracle yeah. and they have given everybody else an incentive that if you can get the great the, the right group of lads you and I've talked about you know the jigsaw as I call it of getting a perfect blend of players who play for each other love each other become family together yeah you'll have an I don't think actually in my lifetime I will see another Leicester City situation no. and so basically what I'm saying is that Arsenal have always been fortunate to, to have a reasonable amount of money but not the sort of money that we're talking about that Chelsea have had and Manchester City have had. And Manchester United, by the way, who are different because Man United are Man United. And yeah. uh, since the days that I was there, you know, since the Munich air crash, Manchester United have been 
well recognized everywhere in the, in the manner yeah. in the manner and everything that they do yeah yeah absolutely excellent stuff well i think that would do is there bob thank you very much for for, okay. for speaking to me i've i've thoroughly enjoyed um speaking to you this morning that's okay, Derek. So I know I hope I hope it makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It certainly does. It was terrific having you on and hearing all the stories. It was um, it was a real pleasure. So, so yeah, thank you. Well, that was episode forty nine of the Talking Football podcast and part two of our special interview with the great Bob Wilson. As ever, I hope you enjoyed it. Remember, if you want to listen to any previous episodes, you can catch them all on Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Podbean, and also by visiting the recently launched website talkingfitball.co.uk. We're also on Twitter. You can follow us at talking underscore football, and we're on Facebook as well. Hope you can join me again next time. But until then, stay safe and bye for now.